For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel and Republican political consultant Neva Hill joining me over Zoom video conference. Welcome back from the Christmas break. A horrible start to 2021 as we saw Oklahoma's congressional delegation running for cover as pro-Trump extremists stormed the U.S. Capitol. I wanted to get your thoughts on these events and the impact moving forward. Ryan, let's start with you. Well, uh, America can no longer claim as a facet of its democracy the peaceful transition of power. Um, We had bloodshed in the United States Capitol of, of all places. Uh, in what should have been uh, a day of recognition of a fair uh, and free election, but that didn't happen. In the last night, or I say last night, uh, Wednesday night, one of my closest friends called to ask if I'd watched the coup. I reminded them that we are continuing to watch a coup, that the insurrection of Wednesday was not the break in a four-year-long fever. Many of our fellow Americans have been inculcated into a movement that is beyond reason, that creates and lives in an alternate reality, It's the result of a hyper-sophisticated, multi-tentacle campaign of psychological warfare, layered on top of a legacy of racism and economic equalities in this nation. It won't magically go away with the inauguration of President-elect Biden. It won't even magically go away if the invocation of the 25th Amendment, which I think should happen without delay. And we can't at this moment underestimate the level of manipulation and brainwashing in this nation. Even now, QAnon is actively engaged in promoting an alternate history of what happened on Wednesday, one in which the violent insurrection was led by Antifa, not Trump loyalist, that this was a staged event meant to undermine President Trump. I shudder at the thought of how many Americans are at this moment permanently lost to this propaganda. And every single elected official who used their power to further the conspiracy that the election was stolen is complicit. They have and continue to fuel this increasingly dangerous fire. And the cognitive dissonance of saying that you don't understand the connection between rhetoric claiming that an election has been stolen and democracy is under attack and the violent response from yesterday is astounding. You know, even President Vice President Pence learned yesterday that the court jester isn't beyond the fall of the executioner's blade. There are, I believe, dark days ahead. We must reckon with the cancer within. It will take resolve, humility, patience, institutional reforms and a plan to slow and reverse the internal political radicalization of huge numbers of Americans, many of whom whom stand perpetually on the brink of violence. And we have no time to waste. Neva. Well, I mean, so much can be said now, and certainly there will be uh, hundreds probably of books, articles, and other things written about this uh, moment in history that we just witnessed that I think all of us, it gives pause. I mean, when you have every living president, former president of the United States uh, um, moving to make statements uh, that uh, uh, really, uh, really echo what so many Americans were uh, thinking and and uh, and speaking out and saying, uh, the fact that it was a it was a it was a very heartbreaking, it was a sickening sight to see that for the first time. Um, for the first time since um, the 1800s, the, that we had the Capitol stormed by uh, rioters, and to have the uh, to have the ensuing actions that took place, I think that was the backdrop. But I think the takeaway beyond that is that at 3:40 uh, a.m. Eastern Time uh, on Thursday morning. 
we had the vice president affirm that Joe Biden uh, is the nation's 46th president. Uh, and so there will be a transfer of, of power on January 20th. I think the expectation and the demand by uh, all will be that it will be an orderly transition of power. And it is clear that uh, that these actions um, give a give pause not only for us as a nation, but how we're viewed around the world. As we saw comments coming in, statements being made by world leaders, uh, uh, democracies looking at this and saying, if this can happen to the United States of America, um, what uh, where does that put us? So I, I think that I think that the 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 long and the short of it is the attempt to stall stop or or, or change the outcome did not happen they were not successful as vice president pence said yesterday they did not win and i think for the republican party it will now be a time where um as as the rally took place uh, early that morning and the president and his son making statements that this was the uh, that this was the Trump party, this was not the Republican party. We now will enter an, another era where the Republican party will have to reestablish itself as, as the party of Lincoln, as the party that uh, is a party with a, with a set of ideas and principles to be espoused. And it is not about any one person. And I think that, um, I think that as we saw even members of the United States Senate, the United States House Republicans, um, during the course of the final debate before those votes were taken, uh, I think I think you saw uh, I think you saw the seriousness of everyone coming to the realization that we've had eight weeks of nonstop uh, attempt to just cloud the issue and to try uh, to uh, change the outcome. There was a process for that, as I've said before. I mean, the courts, there are processes. Those processes took place. They were unsuccessful. And now I think it is incumbent upon us as a nation to look forward and to look for this orderly transition of power to take place on January 20th and to allow for the Congress and for the, uh, the newly elected president and vice president to move forward and move this nation forward and uh, we'll just have to see what, uh, you know, what continues to uh, come about in, in the coming days. But I think I think there will be um, there will be an opportunity for us to have a fresh start. And in terms of just de-escalating the rhetoric that has been uh, so negative. And, and frankly, when you see a situation where the president of the United States now has had uh, social media, Facebook and Instagram, locked down until January 20th uh, and and not be able to uh, uh, communicate through that uh, through that uh, uh, medium it, uh, it 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 speaks to what has occurred and what should not have occurred there are a lot of questions I think the biggest one in my mind is how the capital uh, how the capital police and all of the other law enforcement, uh, were not uh, did not appear to be better prepared for what was clearly uh, going to take place in terms of the numbers of people that were going to be at that rally and all of the social media uh, hype that had gone along with it. So there'll be lots of investigations. There'll be lots of conversation. But uh, 
we'll see, as, as Ryan said, uh, the, the conversation about invoking the 25th Amendment, whether or not there will be another attempt at re-impeachment. I mean, all of, all of these issues, uh, we'll just have to see in the next two mm -hmm. weeks uh, how they move forward. But bottom line is, on January 20th, I think all of the American people should look toward a time where we see an orderly transition of power take place as we have, you know, for all of our lifetimes. I mean, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I have seen 13 um, elections, you know, for president take place that I voted in in my lifetime. I've always seen an orderly transition of power. And to, and to think that we would be in a place where we're even having this conversation is certainly, um, it, 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 it's certainly a very uh, difficult time, I think, for all of us who have uh, spent time in politics, have, uh, have worked hard to elect people, but believe that that clash of ideas and that and and the competition that there there is a proper way to to discharge that and to go about doing it and my my hope is that we'll move back that direction in the days ahead and Oklahoma is now moving into phase two of the coronavirus vaccine distribution. Officials are launching a mobile phone app to help people get the vaccine. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the, or Neva, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on the state's handling of the vaccine? Well, I think, uh, I think, first of all, I mean, all of these states are, you know, in, in new uncharted territory. They're working to roll out the vaccine as quickly as they get the supplies from the federal government. I think Oklahoma's received uh, nearly 175,000 doses and administered uh, maybe 50,000. That was the last uh, number that I saw of this first dose of the two-dose vaccine. So uh, it's going to be an ongoing process. I think the state being... Uh, aggressive and contracting with uh, Microsoft to develop this phone mobile phone application that should allow people not only to be able to better schedule their appointments but do the uh, be able to follow up in terms of knowing when to receive the second dose of the vaccine. I think those are critically important. I think that is something that will help Oklahomans statewide. And I think that uh, you know when we look at the the fact that Oklahoma still ranks fourth in the United States and new cases per capita over the last 14 days, it is critical that we, you know, that we work very aggressively to try to get this vaccine uh, to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Ryan. Well, I think that we're gonna look back at this and there's going to be a lot to learn. Uh, I think that the vaccine rollout has exposed a lot of cracks in the distribution of uh, healthcare, not just in Oklahoma, but uh, I think federally and and perhaps even globally. You know, our our ability to respond to to this pandemic. Uh, the officials in Oklahoma, I think, are all doing the very best they can. Um, and I know that there are a, you know a number of Oklahomans that are anxious to get the vaccine. And we've ended up in a situation where uh, there's you know not just you know one health department talking about this, but we've got you know, 75 uh, county health departments that answer to the state, two that answer to themselves in Oklahoma County and Tulsa County uh, that are running their own programs. And, you know, whenever you've got all that information out there, I think it's it's just hard. Um, and, you know, I applaud the the rollout of the, the website. You know, I, I went on the website uh, just this morning, uh, the, the vaccine portal for, uh, it's vaccinate, here's public service announcement, vaccinate.oklahoma.gov. Uh, went on, it was, you know, fairly easy to, 
to get in and plug in all my information and get in queue. So I'll get a notification ostensibly whenever uh, it's uh, time for me to the phase that I'll be in, which would like would be the very last phase. And that's <laughs> totally fine. Uh, get me in and, and get my vaccination. Uh, yeah, I think that the problem with that is that uh, the shortcoming of that, at least, and that it's recognized by officials, uh, is that there's a digital divide in Oklahoma, and that digital divide is rural and urban. It, it's from you know the affluent Oklahomans to poor Oklahomans uh, and elderly Oklahomans that need to be getting this vaccine first. Um, you know their their primary way of getting an appointment may not be going online and filling out a form, uh, and so it, it's a presumption of of digital uh, competency and access uh, that I think is is going to be a problem here. Uh, but you know, that being said, I, you know, whether it's the, the private sector uh, partners like CVS and Walgreens and, you know, full disclosure, my wife's a pharmacist at CVS and, and is, uh, you know, is you know, part of an organization that's part of this rollout. Uh, but whether it's them or, or state partners or county partners, I think everybody's doing the best they can. Uh, and they're going to, you know, it's, but it's going to be a while, um, you know, not just to get the vaccines out, but before we get the, the kind of global uh, uh, population and inoculation that we need to, to be able to feel safe. Um, you know, we, we keep seeing that, that date move back. You know, it was early, at first it was summer of 2021. Now it looks like fall of 2021. Uh, and in the meantime, the pandemic continues to grow. We're seeing, you know, variants that are, that are more contagious. And uh, so it's, it's still a very serious situation. And I think we need to, you know, give give kudos to the folks that are rolling this out. But in the meantime, we have to continue to take precautions um, to protect ourselves and our friends and our neighbors. Aniva, how important is it for state leaders to show the safety and efficacy of this vaccine to especially many of its followers, their followers who are leery about any vaccines? They're they're anti-vaccination people. So how do you how important is it for state leaders to say this is this you need to get this? Well, I think I mean, I think it is I think it is important to get all of the information out there. Again, it is a personal choice. Some some folks are going to make the decision that they do not want the vaccine. But I think by and large, as we as we see as we are seeing this rollout nationwide and in Oklahoma, we're seeing a situation where the information is being, I think, uh, the information is being disseminated beyond just whether or not someone has a uh, a smartphone and can access this uh, that way. There are city county health departments. There are other uh, means that are being utilized that give a network into um, every every corner of Oklahoma, uh, regardless of their socioeconomic uh, uh, situation. They are going to be reached, and I think it is just a matter of making sure that uh, that this remains a you know kind of a front and center. Uh, priority proposition in terms of continuing to every week as we get 30 to 40,000 vaccines coming in, which is the number that the uh, uh, the state health folks have said uh, they're expecting. It means that they have got to not uh, they've got to not let down. They've got to keep it moving. And as I think more and more people are vaccinated, uh, it will just continue to help you know promote that idea and get more and more folks. Uh, uh, to uh, step up and and take the vaccine as well. Amid the pandemic, Oklahoma lawmakers returned to the state capitol. Organizational day on Tuesday was attended for the legislature to elect leaders and set rules for the coming session beginning February 1st. The Republican majority dismissed a Democratic amendment to rules requiring lawmakers to wear masks. Ryan, what do you think about lawmakers not adding this rule? Yeah, I, it's, it is kind of astonishing that we've gone from May of 2020, 
to January of 2021, and there doesn't seem to be a real plan for how the legislature is going to conduct its business in the midst of a, uh, a pandemic that is just exponentially worse than whenever the legislature uh, adjourned back in May of 2020. Um, and, and frankly, the, the rules and protocols that the legislature had in May of 2020 uh, are you know, much, uh, much more um, reflective of the, of the urgency of the, of the public health crisis that we find ourselves in that's killing thousands of, of Oklahomans and, and uh, you know, hospitalizing thousands every day. And our, our number of cases continues to go up. We continue to see records. Um, you know, that what they were doing in May of 2020 reflected that, uh, I think, much more than what we see in January of 2021. Uh, we've, we've heard promises from leadership in both the House and the Senate uh, that between now and session beginning in February, that they're going to have you know, some plans and protocols in place. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, I, and I, I don't get me wrong. The, there is, there's this argument that the, the governor's executive order about state employees wearing masks inside state office buildings, you know, there is an argument, why doesn't that apply to state legislators? Well, I mean, I, I tend to think that separation of powers that the legislature gets to set their own rules uh, mm-hmm. for, for their own chamber. I think that that's totally fine. But the, just because they get to set their own rules doesn't mean that they shouldn't you know, take that responsibility seriously. And I think that the lack of mass, the lack of protocol right now just doesn't reflect the seriousness of the situation that we're in. I, I hope that that changes between now and February as somebody who's going to be in and out of that building. Uh, but for the people that don't have any choice of being there, I, I hope that for their sake as well. Neva. Well, I do think that Speaker McCall and Senate Pro Tem uh, Treat have created these uh, separate working groups to evaluate these protocols that, that Ryan, you're talking about, and really look at them in view of the upcoming session. I think we we very uh, likely will see after they confer, make recommendations, kind of hammer out the, the give and take that we may see some additional things uh, come into play, uh, very likely, but uh, it certainly wasn't going to take place on uh, organization day, which really uh, is, is really kind of not only the kind of the prelim to the session, which begins in three weeks, but it really uh, is the opportunity for them uh, as chambers to reelect their leadership. And that's what took place. Uh, Charles McCall is now, uh, will now be in his uh, third term as uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, that will be Oklahoma's longest serving House Speaker. And um, and Senator Treat will begin his uh, third term leading the Senate. So uh, their leadership teams are now put in place, uh, both uh, among uh, the Republican and Democrat caucuses. Uh, so uh, they now they now in earnest begin the process uh, leading up to um, February and the start of the session. And, and you are right, Ryan, to the extent that this will still be a different atmosphere, a different, uh, a different place at the Capitol as we continue to move through uh, where we are with COVID and still all of the, uh, all of the issues at play from a health standpoint. So um, we don't know what it's totally going to look like, but I think for, for purposes of talking about the organization day. Um, I think uh, I think at least they have started the ball rolling. Now we'll see where they get to when they get back and come back on February 3rd to open the uh, the next legislative session. 
With the legislative session right around the corner, we've started to get a look at some bills going before lawmakers. Senator Nathan Dom is putting out legislation banning cities and counties from imposing local COVID-19 mask mandates. Nevi, do you think this bill will make it very far in the legislature? No, I think this. I think the the bill is DOA. I think uh, I think it was pretty pretty clear when uh, the uh, chair of the Senate Health and Human Services Committee a committee in the on the Senate side that would be likely to hear uh, Senate Bill 224 if it's brought up for a vote. I mean, uh, Senator Greg McCourtney made it very clear that he was opposed to uh, this legislation. Uh, he believes strongly in local control. And we have to remember that Senator McCourtney was also uh, the mayor of Ada for two terms. So he certainly understands from the, the municipality uh, aspect of, of this whole discussion. So again, I think we've seen in the past, Senator Dom has been uh, very good at uh, um, getting uh, getting a lot of attention and publicity on uh, bills that he would pre-file, many of which went no farther than that. And I think uh, uh, the other point to be made is that uh, uh, it's been clear that his influence in the legislature has uh, been diminished. Um, the very fact that uh, he no longer serves as a, a chairman or vice chairman of any committee uh, as a result of uh, the decisions made by the pro tem, I think also reflects uh, reflects his standing and, and these, uh, these types of uh, pieces of legislation while any lawmaker elected that comes to the Capitol can certainly put anything in the hopper they want and, and have that and have that debate, have that conversation or or try to move uh, try to move those pieces of legislation forward. But in this instance, you know, to your question, Michael, I just don't see uh, based on what we already know much uh, likelihood that there that there's going to be any traction on this type of bill. And Ryan. Well, you know, I, to Neva's point, it's it's difficult to understate just how remarkable it is that a state senator that has been in office as long as Senator Dom has uh, in a Senate that is controlled by a Republican supermajority uh, that that any Republican senator, senator of his tenure in that kind of a supermajority environment would not have a chairmanship, let alone a vice chairmanship of any standing committee is kind of incredible. And it, and it does, I think, un, uh, underscore the, the lack of, um, of relevance that Senator Dom is able to affect upon the state Senate at this point, uh, even among his Republican colleagues. And um, now, I, and I think that Neva is exactly right. Senator McCourtney has, has all but gone on the record, so I'm going to you know, vote against this. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll work against this. Uh, I don't think that this goes anywhere. Even, even Governor Stitt, who has famously made his political bed in not wanting or, or not invoking a statewide mask mandate, has uh, almost you know, uh, given himself some rationale for not doing that by saying that I'm going to leave it to local governments to do it. Uh, so the governor's even endorsed this idea of, you know, let's let the local folks do this. Um, and so I, I don't think that even, even if this made it through the legislature, uh, it will uh, almost certainly be vetoed by the governor. So, I mean, it is it is a political stunt. Um, I, I would go further uh, if I were if I were Chairman McCourtney, and I would encourage Chairman McCourtney to to not even give the bill a hearing. Uh, to give this bill an audience, I think, allows for uh, these conspiracy theories about COVID, these dangerous conspiracy theories about COVID, about the public response to COVID, uh, to have 
a platform they do not deserve. I mean, they are, they are so far afield from fact that they don't deserve the platform of a committee hearing. Um, but, you know, I think it, it, it probably will get a committee hearing just as a matter of, of collegiality, and it will be a heated committee hearing, I'm sure, um, but the bill probably won't go anywhere. The State Ethics Commission imposes hefty fines against two well-known lobbyists. James Milner is paying $65,000, James McSpadden uh, $50,000 for, for violations in working for Oklahomans for healthy living. Ryan, what happened here? Well, you had, I mean, it was, I mean, these are pretty serious fines that are leveled uh, against lobbyists. I mean, these, the, the amounts that they're having to pay here uh, are not insignificant at all. Right. I mean, they are, they're well above what most Oklahomans make in a year uh, and they've got it. They've got to pay these fines. What they did is they, they set up a, a pack and you can set up, you know, there's it's a political a action committee, a political action committee. There's a sense that after citizens United, that we just have anarchy in campaign finance. And it, it is, you know, Citizens United did relax the rules quite a bit, but there's still reporting and regulations that you've got to abide by. And if you create a PAC, a political action committee, uh, you can commit, you can create one of two types of PACs in Oklahoma, a limited PAC or an unlimited PAC. An unlimited PAC can take money in from corporations and they can you know, spend that money on independent expenditures uh, or electionary communication that aren't coordinated with candidate committees, candidates themselves. If you have a limited PAC, you can make direct donations to a candidate, but you cannot accept corporate contributions because corporations can't contribute directly to candidates themselves. So what happened here was an unlimited PAC was created. They accepted corporate contributions to you know, tens of thousands of dollars of corporate contributions. And then they used those corporate contributions to make um, to make contributions to candidates, uh, and so that you know, circumvents that what the ethics committee said was creating a straw man where corporation uh, corporations could park their money in a pack, and then that those dollars could be then transmitted to a candidate. That's against the law in Oklahoma. Um, it's 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 pretty plain and simple. Um, and you know then they went along and didn't report you know their their filings. You know. Uh, contributions that they received or contributions that they made uh, to the PAC. And ultimately, I, you know, I think what happened was probably you had these candidates out there that were receiving money from this PAC, showing them as contributions. And then there's no corollary of expenditure over on this PAC's reporting because they frankly weren't reporting anything for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Ethics Commission probably saw that and said, wait a second, something's amiss here. And they started an investigation and we end up with the, the settlement that we've got today. I think it, it sends a strong message to Oklahomans that want to start PACs uh, and use money in, in, uh, in, in the political field that they've got to do it within these rules. And even do you think the Ethics Commission was also sending a message basically that, that they're going to follow by the, the rules that are that are there? Oh, absolutely. And I think and I think I think that uh, when we look at this, it it is exactly what Ryan says. I mean, folks, if they're going to get involved uh, and uh, in any part of the process of either setting up or being a named person, chairman, treasurer of a political action committee of any sort, you need to know the rules. And you've got to. And I think this clearly demonstrates that the Ethics Commission is going to make certain that you follow the rules or that there's going to be uh, there's going to be hefty fines and in some cases uh, you know something beyond that but in this instance I think when you look at this type of situation oftentimes uh, I think uh, we see 
many of these out-of-state uh, folks that, that come into a state, they want to set up a committee, they want to get involved in the political process, their rules, their, their um, understanding of what they do in another state, perhaps a surrounding state or somewhere else across the country, uh, they go about it one way and frankly, the complexity of all of these ethics rules uh, in every state, as well as at the federal level, which is a whole nother ballgame with the Federal Election Commission. But for the Oklahoma Ethics Commission, there are explicit rules, and it's incumbent upon anyone involved with one of these committees to make sure they know that. And I think in this instance, uh, um, the, you know, one of these two individuals said, look, I allowed my name to be used as uh, treasurer of a pack, and I didn't really fully understand what was expected. Uh, significant errors were made. He accepted the responsibility of these uh, errors and uh, went along in the, um, um, the agreement that was made with the Ethics Commission to go back and rectify all of that paperwork and clean everything up and, and close it out properly. But a very expensive and very painful mistake. And I think it is a wake-up call to everyone um, in, in, uh, in not only in the PAC community, but, but folks that run for political office. You have, you have rules to follow, uh, you have deadlines to meet, um, and there is a process with the Ethics Commission where they're going, they going to make sure that all of the pieces tie together. As, as Ryan said, if, if someone gives to a, 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 a political action committee, gives to a political candidate, the candidate is going to report it. The political action committee is going to report it. Both of those match. When one of them doesn't match, it opens up the door to trying to figure out uh, who is uh, 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 who is deficient in their action on that. So, I, I think I think that in this instance, um, we see all of the parties. You know, at the end of at the end of all of this process, coming together. Uh, the parties that uh, were the two lobbyists that were given the fines, uh, accepting responsibility and, um, you know, paying very hefty fines, as Ryan said. I think the fines were, you have to believe, were that significant to make a, a very dramatic statement to everyone else uh, paying attention to this uh, type of issue that this is not something to take lightly. You're not going to get a slap in the hand and a thousand dollar fine. You're going to get something much more significant. And Neva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.